0: Hello and welcome to Shaping Nations, the podcast that explores the development of smart infrastructure. My name is Patrick Hastings, and as the host of Shaping Nations, I'm excited to bring you another episode. Joining us on podcast today is Commissioner Shane Fitzsimmons, the Commissioner for Resilience New South Wales. Shane Fitzsimmons was appointed as the inaugural Commissioner for Resilience New South Wales and Deputy Secretary, Emergency Management within the Department of Premier and Cabinet. He is currently the Chair of the State Emergency Management Committee the State Recovery Committee, Board of Commissioners, and the National Emergency Medal Committee. Shane joins us today to discuss the importance of building resilient infrastructure in regions, cities, and communities. Thank you for joining us, Shane.
1: Uh, Thank you, Patrick, and good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for the invitation to join you Briefly, this afternoon, uh, in this special conference. Uh, The plan is to talk uh, for 20 minutes and then, more importantly, uh, hand over to some questions uh, and some discussion. Uh, So, as Patrick indicated, uh, Resilience New South Wales has just marked up 12 months, and as I've said publicly before, I accepted uh, the role uh, from government to take on this new agency. But at the time I accepted it, we were talking about an agency. Uh, that was going to be the state's disaster recovery and preparedness uh, organisation uh, and I understood that uh, and just when it came time to announcing the organisation I was informed that it was going to be called Resilience New South Wales and I remember having a conversation with uh, the the State Secretary Tim Reardon the Premier and the Minister and I said what the bloody hell's Resilience New South Wales and no one's going to understand it no one's going to get it no one's going to relate to it If the core is recovery and disaster preparedness, then why don't we just focus there? I'm a simple firefighter. That's what I can relate to. Well, the reality is after 12 months, uh, I've done a lot of reading, uh, most importantly, a lot of listening uh, uh, and hearing uh, the views and opinions uh, of many people uh, right around New South Wales uh, and elsewhere. Uh, And I don't know whether my antennae has just been uh, acutely attuned to this word in the last 12 months, but I can't recall in my lifetime Uh, when I've heard the word resilience used so much in society, uh, in family conversations, in our news bulletins. Our primary remit, our three priorities were recovery, 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 uh, particularly coming out of the bushfires, which were coming on the back end of one of the worst droughts we've seen in centuries in New South Wales. 100% of the state drought affected, drought declared. The worst ever uh, bushfire season uh, the state's experienced. And the organisation was announced uh, to come into place on the 1st of uh, May. Uh, But as the weather broke uh, in New South Wales in February of 2020, uh, it broke all right. And in many of areas, uh, we saw uh, wide scale, heavy rains, flooding across a very denuded landscape, very vulnerable landscape from drought and bushfires, pretty significant uh, erosion, landslides uh, and other implications for already uh, impacted communities. So apart from recovery and rebuilding and repair and reconstruction, uh, the other thing we don't talk about enough uh, when it comes to resilience uh, is the healing, uh, uh, the, the, the emotional and psychological impacts on individuals, on families, on businesses, and on communities. So as we work through focusing on the recovery, uh, so too was our role to define a remit uh, and seek to define what resilience New South Wales was and would be and how we we're going to work going forward. And through a lot of consultation and interactin- interaction over many months with key stakeholders, internal personnel, uh, and different communities across New South Wales and local government, Resilience New South Wales has been identified as the agency from prevention through to recovery, building confidence to our communities to live, work and invest in New South Wales. Through leading coordinating disaster management and recovery, driving strategies and investment to reduce risk, to build resilience of New South Wales communities, to significant external shocks and stresses of all kinds. The compounding effects that we've seen are really symbolic and sobering uh, as to why we are here. So once we started uh, as an organisation, we were well and truly into the thick of COVID, uh, which I think has been a leveler for everybody. It reminds us all that we are susceptible in this big world, uh, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter what we are uh, in society. Uh, And then as we were getting through COVID, uh, in March of this year, uh, we've seen some of the most extraordinary uh, rainfall events, uh, resulting in some pretty um, uh, significant and, in some parts, unprecedented uh, river rises and flooding, inundation in parts of in parts of New South Wales, notably around uh, northwestern Sydney and the Hawkesbury Nepean, uh, but also up around the mid north coast and north coast of New South Wales. As a matter of fact, 60% uh, of the local government areas declared natural disasters during the floods. Uh, also happened to be declared natural disasters uh, through the bushfires. So within a very short period of time, uh, you've got community um, uh, significant compounding um, issues and implications, devastation and dislocation of communities. Thousands of homes, um, billions of dollars worth of infrastructure damaged and or destroyed. With unprecedented circumstances resulting from these extraordinary events in terms of damage, destruction, dislocation, isolation... Um, uh, destruction and, and what have you. So too would you expect to see a unprecedented level of of interest, of investment, of focus to seeking to learn, uh, to build back better, uh, to support and 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 commit uh, with local communities to nuanced priorities, to nuanced focus areas, to ensure uh, that building resilience in their communities through infrastructure or through other programs uh, was equal to the task. And just in infrastructure alone, some of the figures that I've been able to see um, in responding to the drought, there's been just under $4 billion has been committed to drought uh, response effort across New South Wales. Uh, more than $1 billion to safe and secure water programs, boosting town water supply, upgrading storages, pipelines and bores. Uh, the recent floods alone up on the north coast, another $500 million has been committed uh, to the first couple of phases of the recovery effort. Um, these programs are Uh, often jointly funded through the Commonwealth and the state uh, and linking in with local government. The bushfires alone, uh, $4.4 billion, um, including $3 billion from the New South Wales government. Uh, There was a billion dollars' worth of damage and destroyed uh, public infrastructure alone uh, in in the bushfires. And I can say, in my decades of time in fire and emergency services and in emergency management, I've lost count of how often we've talked about um, following disasters, about levering the opportunity uh, rather than building the same thing that was there before uh, and was so susceptible and destroyed and damaged. We all sit around the table, we argue, we talk, we reach a general consensus but no one can find the, you know, the closing of the deal with the hammer hitting the, hitting the table uh, and, and by, for whatever reasons, we've got all these great ideas uh, but we find ourselves replacing uh, the same piece of infrastructure with what, with what was there before because that's where the conventional, the traditional guidelines and and policy frameworks tend to be. Well, it is pleasing to see, in my view, uh, that in more recent years, uh, we've seen a discernible difference. Uh, We are seeing uh, betterment funding uh, being factored into uh, repair, reconstruction, rebuilding uh, in disaster-impacted areas. Uh, One of the notable, uh, simple, but really important examples uh, out of the last 18 months uh, is the example of timber bridges. Uh, timber bridges, as long as I can remember, with my fire hat on, uh, and of course in my partnership work with um, uh, flood organisations like the SES uh, around, around New South Wales, timber bridges are highly susceptible uh, to damage and destruction through bushfires, and they're often, they often coincide with being in really low-lying areas to get across causeways and, and river areas. And in a lot of councils, where fires aren't their biggest priority, flood inundation is, low to moderate floods, often result in significant isolation, separation, uh, inundation to local communities uh, and an inability to traffic around around their community. Well, it's pleasing to see out of the last big disastrous fire seasons with all the timber bridges that were damaged or destroyed, uh, we're replacing them with c- concrete bridges. Hooray. It's, it sounds simple, but it is most significant. It's most significant because we're taking the opportunity rather than what we've done in yesteryear where we just build back the same timber bridge and wonder why it burns down in the next five years or ten years, when another fire goes through the same area, we're investing up front and we're making it better and more resilient uh, to to withstand uh, impact and disaster. Uh, But so, too, in a lot of these areas, uh, we're taking the opportunity to raise the height of that timber bridge by half a metre or a metre, which addresses 60%, 80% uh, of the low to moderate flood uh, implications for that area uh, to build stronger uh, confidence and resilience uh, into those into those local communities. But what we've also seen uh, through the compounding effect of disasters, particularly over the last 18 months to two years, is that we are reframing and reshaping uh, the knowledge and the understanding and the definitions around what we describe as critical infrastructure. Critical infrastructure landed uh, on, our, on our plate uh, over a decade or a couple of decades ago, about a decade ago, uh, with September 11. Uh, and critical infrastructure has typically been used uh, through a lens for the last decade as those assets, those key key bits of infrastructure and community that might be susceptible to or vulnerable to um, uh, terror attacks or terror um, um, uh, actions uh, to disrupt society. But we've learnt through the last uh, couple of years, uh, particularly, that critical infrastructure is more commonly being acknowledged and, and, and recognised as the infrastructure that we rely on, that we need to simply operate and function as a society. And coming to the forefront in so many occasions are the basic elements. It's the ability to be able to use power, use water, flush toilets. So your utilities, your power, um, uh, your your water systems, your water supply, uh, your sewerage systems. Uh, But so too uh, is our telecommunications. Our telecommunications systems in terms of business, in terms of social activity, uh, day-to-day communication uh, with family, loved ones, business uh, uh, and colleagues uh, is, is critically important. Um, so, too, though, is our dependency on on, on telecommunications in times of disaster uh, for the provision of warnings, for the provision of advice, for the provision of public information so that people can make informed, um, um, uh, insightful decisions that go to the core of helping to save uh, life and property. There were so many examples during the fire season alone where I'd see media headlines that communities had run out of fuel. It was a load of rubbish. Uh, communities weren't running out of fuel. Um, what we were having the problem with was uh, we ran out of power. Uh, and when we run out of power, no-one can pump fuel uh, out of the fuel tanks, which are full in the service stations. Uh, and even if we did back up the power into those into those fuel stations, in this modern era, no-one can bloody pay for anything because we don't carry cash uh, and no-one can activate a, a, a tap-and-go card. And even if they've got their EFTPOS <coughs> card, they can't go down across the bank because the bank's out of power as well. So when we, when, we, when we talk about resilience, I think COVID, there's many silver linings in COVID, and I think one of the most important things about COVID uh, is the ubiquitous nature of COVID uh, and its indiscrimination in terms of who it, who it affects and who it impacts, whereas normally disasters and, 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 and emergencies happen to some area. We're all outpouring with support and care and love and compassion, legitimately so, but we all end up going on very quickly with our busy lives. COVID has reset all of us. And reminded us how vulnerable we've been in the last 12 months, particularly uh, with more and more people working remotely, working from home. We've seen an exponential increase uh, in things like cyber activity and cyber crime, and and and, and penetration into networks uh, of of all persuasions, government, private, uh, and otherwise. So when we look at when we look at going forward, and we think about how can we do things better, uh, there's very obvious and abundant. Um, uh, learnings coming through as they have for years but more particularly in recent times they've been reinforced through some of the independent inquiries particularly into the bushfires uh, where uh, there is no authoritative um, the the independent inquiry in New South Wales identified there's no authoritative um, consolidated state register of things of value assets and services we need to redefine and recast our mind around what is critical infrastructure what is valuable, how do we get uh, to invest and build to create that resilience to support communities so that they can have confidence to live, work and invest in New South Wales. Our investment in our investment in physical infrastructure, but also our investment uh, in infrastructure that provides a multiplicity of uses and functions. Uh, I remember very vividly visiting up on the mid-north coast and the local community up there through its, through its considered planning had identified an evacuation centre as a local community hall. I visited this area after the fires. The community hall was a timber weatherboard community hall. Uh, At the front, it was at ground level. At the back, it was at about seven foot off the ground, 1.82 metres off the ground. There was no water in the building. There was no power in the building. And the grass in the paddock that it was located was about, if there was a bit of grass there, was about three foot tall across most of the areas uh, and under the piers. It was the nominated evacuation centre for the community because it was a public building. Yet from here, to the back wall away, across the other side of the driveway, was the local public school. The local public school had been designed and considered uh, with bushfire vulnerability in mind. Uh, It had 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 retrofitted works to it. It had the the right screening around the gardens. It had had really good garden design and garden configuration. Nothing was combustible in the gardens. It was all stonework and, and sensible plants. It actually had water. It had power it had toilets to accommodate people, they could do tea and coffee, et cetera, et cetera. As it turns out, common sense prevails and people went to the school and they were accommodated, everything from infants uh, right through to people uh, that were nearing 100 years of age, and I think they had about 200 people there. So when we're thinking about our infrastructure in local communities, yes, they might have a primary purpose, but what is the ulterior purpose? What is the ulterior um, 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 benefit that can be derived to this local community? Uh, to help build resilience and help build focus uh, in those areas, we've we've committed very much in New South Wales uh, in responding to things like having uh, common data sets, a state repository for such information, through things like the State Infrastructure Strategy of 2018, which is currently being updated uh, to start capturing and identifying and building uh, resilience in design, function, amenity, and what have you. Uh, we've also got significant investments into our state digital twin. Uh, which is actually modelling the entire state, uh, not only in its natural environment, but also in its built environment, uh, above ground and below ground. Uh, The new agency, Resilience New South Wales, has taken on responsibility now for coordinating the state's uh, critical infrastructure register uh, and what that means across public and private assets, what are the standards, what are the gradings, and how do we partner uh, across industry and sector to to work with that. Uh, Also, uh, we've seen some really live examples uh, more recently uh, with with how we how we respond to and partner with industry and business uh, in supporting people in times of crisis times of needs with significant programs to support infrastructure growth cleaning up sites we had to clean up more than 3,000 sites where homes have been destroyed through bushfires and we've cleaned up a similar number uh, through the floods alone uh, just recently uh, many of the people in the floods were part way through rebuilding after the fires and had their had their assets or, or their infrastructure washed away so how do we partner with those, with those organisations? And we've seen some significant investments uh, being able to bring uh, industry innovation uh, programs and products to, lever, uh, uh, to leverage much more than we would normally otherwise be capable of doing uh, at a state level. So going forward, uh, I can see particularly with the announcement of the new federal body, uh, Recovery and Resilience Australia, uh, organisations like Resilience New South Wales and our counterparts in different jurisdictions how do we start looking at local communities, typically on local government areas, collections of local government areas? How do we look and assess consistently across the country what they're vulnerable or susceptible to from natural and other and other hazards or disasters? How do we start identifying? Uh, we build resilience into those communities, map out programs of five, ten uh, and further uh, ahead uh, of no cost, low cost, right through to significant cost, strategies to help build that resilience to ameliorate and address uh, those vulnerabilities and susceptibilities and when disasters and program uh, disasters and emergencies do strike with a considered objective view we've got a much more robust objective argument to talk about betterment funding because we'd already identified uh, this level of vulnerability and susceptibility going forward and i think through some consistent approach we will see uh, betterment investment resilient investment or resilience investment uh, upfront, ahead of disasters, but also uh, meaningful and, and uh, timely decisions around betterment funding uh, post disasters. And whilst the focus obviously in your forum is around infrastructure, at the core of all that we are doing, every figure that we come up with, uh, people are at the centre. Uh, no matter where I travel, uh, we talk about recovery, we talk about rebuilding, we talk about repair, we talk about reconstruction, but we don't talk enough about healing. The emotional and psychological toll is enormous. Uh, and the criticality of connecting with uh, local communities, taking advice and guidance from local communities, local organisations uh, is fundamental in determining priorities and needs because they will vary from community to community and we've got to be able to accommodate that nuance and that flexibility and factor that into our state and and national strategies. So whatever we're doing, um, people have got to be at the core of those contemplations uh, and decisions. I think I will finish there. Um, for questions if I've got time.
0: The first question is around behaviour there we go. Should we stop calling extreme weather events caused by climate change natural disasters as this implies we are not responsible for causing them. So really the the conversation around behaviour and language um, and how that that affects both disaster management as well as our broader decision making.
1: Look I'm not too sure about the narrative on the language. I think what what the, what the events of the 1920 bushfire season reinforce, and I've been quite public about, we've been factoring in strategies and investment programs and initiatives uh, for, for, for a decade or more now, uh, centering around the realisation that the projections are that we can expect more frequent, more intense uh, weather events, we can expect uh, longer, hotter, drier uh, bushfire seasons, that correlates with shrinking windows of opportunity for mitigation and prevention programs. And our investments need to be um, uh, through the lens of understanding and and acknowledging that. How we design, how we build, where we build, um, what we build, all those sorts of things. Um, How we respond, how we manage. I think the big thing that came out of 1920 is that whilst it was unprecedented on so many levels uh, in terms of the protracted nature, uh, the weather pattern, um, uh, the fire behaviour, which which was breaking convention, It's no longer unprecedented. And whilst we don't expect that event to be the norm, what we've got to get our head around is it signals the new extreme, uh, the the new sort of extreme, and the potential going forward is uh, that that can be expected to be amplified. I think that's what we've got to start putting our lens around. Uh, And and whilst natural disasters um, uh, or uh, environmental-type disasters are there, what we've also got to think about is the correlation and the connection and the interdependencies between all those other elements and the disasters that can come, can come around directly uh, as a result of, 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 our, of our actions and activities as well. And there is a correlation and a connection between them all.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Um, I think the, the next question really on that is, what do you think the next disruptive, disruptive event or um, in, 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 sorry, initiative that will positively change the way we approach disaster management?
1: Um, if, if, if I had the answer to that, if any fire or emergency practitioner had the answer to what will bring about change to ready ourselves to the next big event, we, we would have solved that decades ago. Tragically, um, the research shows over and over again, even when I was with the RFS, we did lots of research immediately after big impacted into fire areas, and the research would invariably show figures around the order of 70%-plus of people that had just been burnt out by fires, A, recognised they lived uh, in one of the highest-risk fire-prone areas in the country, if not the world, but the same percentage of people, invariably, also conceded they knew they should have, could have, and wish they would have done more to prepare themselves, prepare their property from that risk. Working with the social science uh, researchers, how do we get people... I mean, there's some great old Aussieisms in our culture. She'll be right, mate. Um, it won't happen to me. Doesn't cut it when it comes to disasters. Um, and unfortunately, we do have this inherent lethargy or apathy. Um, and with, with, dare I say it without sounding contradictory, there's a legitimacy to complacency and apathy because if you take bushfires alone, um, if you get a bushfire in your back door within a decade, you're really unlucky. Um, um, you might get it in your suburb. And ironically, the people, the people this season that will be most prepared for fires in New South Wales, I'm willing to bet you, are the ones that least need to be, because all those that have just been burnt out and damaged and destroyed by fires, they've got it front of mind. Everything they're doing, everything they're designing, their prep work for the year, they're, they're, they're living it because it was so recent. But around them for thousands of thousands of, um, um, uh, hectares, millions of hectares, the fires most unlikely to get there for years. Similarly, uh, we did some research um, only in 2018, 2019, in light of the East Coast low, the La Nina pattern that was forecast for the last season, the Hawkesbury-Nepean was identified as a vulnerable area of inundation, particularly given that the dam had had reached um, uh, full levels uh, as a result of some welcome rain in the previous year. We surveyed people in the Hawkesbury-Nepean catchment, 82% of people had no idea they were in high flood-prone areas. How can that be uh, in, in 2020, 2021? Uh, and then when we started doing deliberate programs, people said that they had consciously done something to prepare themselves or their property uh, in light of flood. We didn't test whether that was worthwhile or meaningful or, or, or to what level of preparation they'd done, but at least people had turned their mind to it, which was better. So the simple answer is, I don't know how uh, we get all of us um, uh, no matter who we are to understand uh, and personalize what we might be vulnerable or susceptible to and then actually do something about it individually and collectively to start making a difference it 's a tough one yeah
0: now I think we've got time for one more one more question and I, I think that this one's fantastic so what top three initiatives or actions do you believe the government should focus on in building resilience in communities and this is to the point around consultation and and um, and discussions you've had over the last 12 months?
1: So I, th- I think, I think the, the, the thing that leads uh, most notably is to have local focus, local leadership, local advice. Um, I think what we need is a consistent methodology in understanding how do we identify a local government area or collections of local government areas, drill down into those communities to understand and explore what is what is their level of vulnerability susceptibility and to what? What are the priority areas and how do we prioritise them? Um, once we do that, uh, we then start identifying what are the things that, that are at no cost, low cost, right through to significant that can start... The strategies, programmes, investments that can be done to start to start um, uh, addressing that um, um, and that can be straight away, it can be right through to five or ten year strategies to start building. So I think, like anything... Uh, the more we engage at the local level, the more we then take that uh, effort and convert it into something tangible. So the reality is we've got to deliver. Uh, As we are delivering through the response and the recovery phases of all these compounding disasters, we've now got to convert that energy and that focus uh, into proactive uh, forecasting uh, uh, strategic investments and narrative as well. Um, I think the conversation and the realisation around... Uh, vulnerability and susceptibility also equals opportunity uh, is is the other narrative so I think conversation is the key locally led locally driven state nationally enabled facilitated partnering with partnering with industry business uh, not-for-profits and and having some uh, level of of parity uh, in terms of what we're doing and why we're doing it and not always going it alone but seeking to work together at all layers of government people in community Don't give a bugger, whether it's the Commonwealth, the state or local that's in there helping them understand, uh, invest uh, and respond to or recover from disasters. They just want us to be working together. So doing it in a collaborative way is going to be fundamental.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you you very much, Shane, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shaping Nations if you want to support our show and be the first to know when a new episode drops, be sure to subscribe. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please leave us a five-star review. We'll see you next time.